The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome out there in the hallway. Come on in. And those of you online, we're glad that you're participating with us. As many as you are, or as few as you might be, we're going to go into the Word, and our brother has a good message from the Minor Prophets for us. Those portions of Scripture are not the most well-known by believers, so it's important for us to increase our understanding and knowledge of them. So, And Brother James, welcome. We look forward to the Word. We're going to see what has been happening in his study with uh, the notes and everything that he has. Thank you, Brother. Thank you, Pastor. I appreciate that. Today we are continuing our study in the book of Amos. In our last meeting, we spoke some in regarding chapter 7. One of the things that I do when I prepare is to go back to the beginning and look at everything over again. And then I have new and different ideas sometimes as to things that maybe would be helpful to say regarding some things we've already spoken about before. We know that when we do these studies, as we do here and as I have been doing, that what we've been doing is going through the scripture text from, you know, start through, but not every person who hears hears all of the sequential messages. So one of the things we try to do is to kind of bridge that gap a bit so that if a person is listening for the first time to one of these in this series, they won't be totally befuddled and wonder, well, what, where is he going and where he's come from? And so as we resume the study, we remind ourselves that Amos was one of the prophets in a group of 12 prophets that are referred to as the minor prophets. Those are referred to as minor prophets because of the length of the books relative to many of the other books in the Old Testament. And so those are minor prophets. We see in the book of Amos that there's nothing minor about the messages that he's delivering. In fact, we could say all of these messages are major because of the judgment narrative that is present there. We also remind ourselves that the audience, the primary audience or the first audience of Amos were a group of people who were located in the northern area of Israel or of the divided kingdom, that when Solomon died, there became a schism and a division. And so the northern part is referred to as Israel. You will notice in this book of Amos, sometimes the word Jacob is used in reference to the northern part. And then the southern part is Judah. Now we have this prophet Amos. And what we understand, the text tells us that he was not one of the what was called members 
of the group of people who will be training to be prophets in the school of the prophets. Scriptures talk about school of the prophets. He was not one of those people. He was not also a descendant of a prophet. And we then say that Amos was an ordinary man going about his business. He was one who was tending herds. He was one who was caring for the sycamore fruit or the sycamore figs. And so he was carrying on. I mentioned before that we can surmise that he was being faithful where he was in what he was doing. It might be interesting to think about that in, in this context, that much of what we see in this book has to do with not faithfulness in the even carrying out of the business propositions, but of cheating and all that kind of thing. But Amos wasn't that kind of person. And so God then chose him. It's like he tapped him on the shoulder and said, Amos, I have a job for you to do, and it's not here in Judah. I need you to go north, go up to Bethel and proclaim some messages. And these are not happy messages. So I'm giving you a tough job to do. A bearer of burdens, a burden bearer, burden is what Amos would be. I said it that way to help us to see that he himself bore a burden. He was burdened for his people. And we see that come out in some of these expressions that are used here in the text. So Amos goes up to Bethel. He begins to give the messages that he has been assigned to give. Now, when we consider... When this prophecy was given, that it was approximately 750, 760 B.C., somewhere in that time frame, that's nearly 3,000 years ago. I would say that's a long time. How many of us can trace our family tree back that far? Well, I don't think we can. I know I can't. I would never hope to try to do that. But 3,000 years ago, so we're saying then that there was a prophet who delivered a message to his primary audience approximately 3,000 years ago. Now, for some people, that would be enough for them to say, I really don't need to pay much attention to that. It is so well outdated. Why should I use my time to consider that? Of course, there are reasons why it is reasonable and profitable to do such a thing as that. And what we're going to do is just refer to a scripture, and we know it here. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And it tells us there what we need to understand when we approach some of these texts. I didn't write the right, okay, let me see. I don't think I put the right reference down here. Anyway, uh, somebody will get me corrected on the reference. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it's profitable. I'm sorry? If you want to correct 
Oh, it is? Okay, well, I'm just not seeing it correctly in my Bible here. Okay, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly reproved, and that he may be able to live, you know, the way that God wants. And so what this text is saying is that the scripture is profitable, not just to the immediate initial audience, but it is for us as well. So as people who believe that what we have is the word of God, then we have confidence that what is here has profit for us. So then that means that we ought to carefully consider what the prophet has to say. We should be concerned to see what can we glean from what the audience was told. Now that means to some extent that we, well, I will say we have to be careful though to understand when I said 3,000 years ago, that's a long time. But the message was given to a different culture than what we have and was given as a different language than what we have. So that means that we need to be mindful of that. Now, we have the benefit of having good translations, but we don't say that the translations are perfect or even that we perfectly or adequately sometimes understand the translation as it is, even in the part that is good. So we approach these things with a measure of humility before God and ask in prayer that he will help us so that we will not lead people astray when we try to teach from the scriptures and try to glean something of what the situation was for the people to who were the initial audience. So now with that, you will notice that in the first six chapters of Amos, I brought attention to this in one of the other meetings, that there is a repeated phrase that Amos uses when he's getting ready to deliver the information he has. And he says, thus says the Lord. And that's a refrain over and over and over again. The prophet says, thus says the Lord. 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 If you get the significance of it and that repetition you get to understand that what Amos is helping us to see is that he doesn't have a personal stake in this. He has no bidding of his own. He is an instrument in the hand of God. He is an obedient servant of the Most High God, and he's delivering the message that he has, or the messages that he has, not his own. Now, that's very important to understand. Even when we get now into chapter as we're in chapter 7 to focus now, and we begin to see an accusation that's brought against Amos. And if you just read the accusation on the face of the matter, it would appear that Amos had his own designs, that he's not doing the bidding of another. So it's important to understand that. But one thing greater than that, though, is if we understand that what the prophet is given is really God's, message, then we should stand up and say, I need to pay attention. 
And if I get distracted, I need to stop and start again, which I have to do all the time. It's been a problem for me, or shall I say a struggle, that I work on all the time. Getting distracted and having to start over again. Sometimes I try to read a section and I have to start six times just to get my brain focusing on what I'm trying to read. I, hear, I see some head shaking. I think I'm not the only one who has an experience like that. But if the thing that is, you're trying to focus on is important, then you do it. You just keep right on going, keep on, after, keep on asking the Lord for help that I can get in and understand and see what it is, see what it is in front of me and understand it. That's what the goal is. Now, in these first six chapters, Amos gives messages of judgment that are coming. Messages of judgment to eight nations. Now, we know that judgment comes from the hand of God and that when it does come, the people have deserved the judgment. There's no doubt about that. So when the judgment hand of God falls, the ones on whom it falls deserved the judgment. Now that's one way of putting it. You can see with Israel that although God brings judgment, he does not bring annihilation. Keep that in your thoughts. Because some of these judgments are so severe. And when Amos addressed these six nations, he addressed the six who were non-Israelites. And then he addressed Judah. And then he addressed Israel. And Israel got the master treatment. They were in the crosshairs of imminent judgment that was about to fall in 50 years, within 50 years. So it was critically important for them to get it. They needed to get it. Now, those messages are delivered. Now, we drew a little attention to that before, but when Amos says, thus says the Lord, we think about the form. We've been thinking a little bit about literary forms and the idea of what the prophet is doing through those. And so if we think about a narrative uh, presentation of what God's message is, and we see that, you know, we use the word oracle for these eight as a manner of presentation. But what Amos talks about now, though, when you look in the first verse of chapter 7, he doesn't say, thus says the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord is not speaking. He is. But there's a difference and a change in literary form. In the first part of chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, thus says the Lord. I, I mean, yeah, thus the Lord God showed me. That's what it says. Thus the Lord God showed me. Now, we call that a vision. So now we are saying literary form now has changed. He was given a presentation 
that was more narrative form. Now he's saying, I had a vision. I saw something, and I'm going to describe to you what it is I saw. You can think about literary structures that are used to get the attention. It's almost as if I gave you all these and you, maybe I need to give you something a bit more graphic. So God allowed him to see some things. You can think about reading an account, let's say, of a, of a battle. Let's pick World War II. We can read an account of a certain battle. And we get an impression of what it's like. Maybe even imagine it. But then we see it in a moving picture. Or what we call a movie. And think about the difference. In fact, in our meeting yesterday, the men were talking. And the 9-11 came up about the planes crashing into the towers. And that out of the desperation of the situation, people jumping out of the windows. And I think I heard a brother say, you know, I just couldn't keep looking at that. I just couldn't. It was just too much for me. Because of that, that graphic image got his attention in that way. He probably could have read the whole account and not had that kind of emotional response to it. And so we see then the prophet has switched to this vision. And he says, a vision. I have seen something. The Lord has allowed me to see something. And I want to tell you what it is that I saw, and I want to tell you the response that I had to it. Now, the first two of these visions are focused, the first one on locusts, and the second one on fire. And we're going to take these two together and look at what, was implied or what the vision was presenting and then the response of the prophet and the response of God and we, what we might glean from it. So let's look at these two. First, I'm going to read through chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and then I'll pick out the points that I want to emphasize here. It says, thus says, thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land. Now, think in your mind in the Envision what the prophet saw, these locusts, and the, it's, the, it's the late harvest, beginning of the late harvest. The king's mourns had been done. That, mean, that means that what was needed for the satisfaction of the king and his, his revenue had already been harvested, so they were okay. But now for the late crop, it needed to be successful in its development and growth so that the people would be able now to have their sustenance and without it there would be famine. Pastor Matt gave us some illustrations about these locusts that were 
really gripping. I mean, the way he put it and talks about it and even seeing these guys out there at his family farm, you know, these kind of guys just eating everything, leaving nothing for the people to feed on. Such a thing would lead to famine. I don't know what it is to live in famine. I'll tell you this, though. There are a whole lot of people in the world who knows what that means. And it's not. So now he says. In verse verse two, oh, Lord God, forgive, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Now I'm going to go on to the next one here in verse number four. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, the Lord God called for conflict of fire. And it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Fire. Now I don't know what it is to be caught in a conflagration of fire either. But I can tell you what. There are a lot of people in California who know all about it because they got caught. And many of them lost their lives. Many people lost their lives. Many people lost loved ones, lost everything they owned materially that was present in the area where the conflagration occurred. So fire is a devastating thing that will wipe it all out, getting out like that. But this is what Amos is saying. Amos is saying, I see The Lord allowed me to see this. It's as if he's saying, what I'm telling you is this, that God has designed to bring this fire. The first vision was he was going to bring this judgment by allowing these locusts to put you into famine. Now he's saying, I'm going to allow this fire to come to put you in desperation. So now Amos, in seeing that, he responds to that. And he said, oh, my Lord, this is a this is a horrible thing. So he says, Jacob, Jacob is so small. And he says that in both of these. He says, Jacob is so small. Jacob, Israel, God, they, they were God's special folk. They're special people, especially called out. And obviously Amos knew all about that. So small. One of the interesting things about that, though, this that expression so small, Jeroboam II, who was the king in Israel at that particular time, had been successful militarily. He had possession of the greatest land mass for Israel since Solomon. That's where I understand it. So, but it says small here. But if you compare it to some of the other ancient uh, Near Eastern countries, then it will be small by comparison to that. But Israel had a special place. And the prophet was sensitive to that. So I would suggest this. That the prophet, although he had no message of his own, and although he was not doing his own bidding, he had an interest in what was going on. He was not a passive instrument 
in the hand of God, but he was one who loved the people whom God was having to discipline. And that comes through, I think, in the emotion that seemed to be generated by his response there. He says, oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, forgive. Blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven. What a blessing. So he asks for the Lord's forgiveness for the people. For the people. They are sinned horribly. God said judgment must fall. And he says, Lord, forgive the people. And his second cry in verse 5, he says, cease, I pray. Oh, Lord, God, cease. Now, it says at the end of both of these that the Lord relented. He relented. So now, what do you suppose would have been the result if the prophet had not prayed? What do you think? That's worthy of thinking about. But he did pray. And, and that's important for us to consider. Because prayer is important. And it may be more important than what we sometimes consider when we go about our activities and decide how we're going to approach the things that are in our lives and and how we're going to deal with those. So he's asking for forgiveness and he's asking the Lord to cease. And so prayer. You know what James says in chapter 5 about prayer? That the effectual and fervent prayer of the righteous availeth much. Or Matthew 18. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Prayer is important. So we would say this, that Israel, with regard to these first two occurrences we're reporting here, was a righteous man who was praying. Elijah was a man like we are, and he prayed. And the rain stopped. He prayed, and the rain came. Elijah was a man of prayer. But it was a man. So what does that mean for us? The implication is that we also should be praying the effectual and fervent prayer of the righteous. Now, note that I didn't say that we should pray in isolation from everything. Or that prayer standing alone is what we ought to be doing. I didn't say that. We hear all kinds of people talking about praying. And people use expressions of various kinds. I've heard people say, I made my peace with God. And I think the implication is that some kind of prayer. But that's not what the emphasis is in the scripture here for us as believers in the Lord. The thing that is required for us, the Lord says, Don't hinder 
your prayer. There are things we can do to hinder our prayer, and the Lord says don't do that. So we need to be about ourselves to say, Lord, I know I need your help more than what I really understand, but I know I need it. And I'm asking you to help me because I'm in need, very needy, so that I can pray this prayer, effectual and fervent prayer, so that when I pray, I can have a confidence that it's not just words being voiced, not just something spoken into the air, but that I've done my business to try to be right before the one to whom I pray. And that's what we should be about. So we have here then this presentation from Amos. And Amos delivers. And God relents. And the people could say, hallelujah, we're not going to have famine by locusts. Hallelujah, we're not going to have devastation by fire. But the prophet wasn't done. And so we'll now take a look at the next one of these visions. This will be the number three vision of these five that are here in chapters six through nine. But look what it says here. Again, now, verse number seven. This is also Amos chapter seven. Thus he showed me. Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plum line. I spoke about the plum line before and of how when I was doing construction work, we used that plum line on the corner of the building to make sure that we had the thing in perpendicular form so that it would be built correctly the way it should and not be the leaning tower, but to be the way it should be. And so the imagery here is the idea, and this is where I understand. I know that other, there are some translators who use a different expression here, and they talk about ten and what ten would mean in this context and all that. I'm not going to get into any of that, but I know about that. But I'm using the plumb line the way it is in our translation here. And so the idea is, is that if the plumb line is put there, the plumb line can be used to determine if the thing is standing up perpendicular as it should, or if it's leaning, or leaning. Now, in terms of a general construction project, and if you're going to evaluate a building, and you look at the wall, and you say, now, can this wall be, can this problem be remedied? We know it has some lean, but can it be remedied? Sometimes the construction workers are able to, to jack up a side of a building. I've seen that. So that they can bring it into plumb, a correction, a prayer of intercession by an ineffectual and fervent and righteous person. So to be able to bring it into conformity. But sometimes, it's too far out of conformity to be rescued. 
And so the only thing left is to knock it down and start over again. That's the imagery of a plumb line. So he showed me that plumb line. And in verse number 8, And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. Now, the Lord has declared that there really is no more need for the intercessory prayer because the project is now beyond repair. There's no sense in bringing out the jacks to try to jack up the building on the side to bring it into plumb because it's too far out of plumb. And that's what he's saying here. In the midst of my people, Israel. So the prophet doesn't offer an intercessory prayer. We can understand him seeing now that the noncompliance is too great. And the judgment now is going to fall. It's coming. It's going to happen. So, in verse 9, the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with a sword against the house of Jeroboam. He says, I will rise with a sword against the house of Jeroboam. I'm emphasizing that because of what comes next with the priest and what he says. I want us to refer back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And just to read a couple of verses from there. I've said before when we were doing these studies that God was very explicit with the people so that what they needed to do in order to be able to be safe and secure in the land was not a mystery. They didn't have to go to the secret arts people to try to find out what is it that the Lord requires because he was explicit about it. So I want to read a verse, a couple of verses here. At the end of Deuteronomy chapter 28, not all the way to the end, I guess, but towards the end, verses 49 and 50, and this is what it says there. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. Wow, that is not something to look forward to. But he says that's what's coming. That's what's coming. So these visions now, it would seem that if the people couldn't get the message 
from the oracles that have been delivered. They ought to be able to get it from this depiction, uh, detailing of the vision. They should be able to get it. And if they could get it, then that prayer of intercession, O Lord, forgive and help us to be restored, could come to fruition, or they could harden their hearts. But the scripture says, do not harden your hearts as in the day of provocation. So do not harden your hearts. Now that's, I think, a verse where we can all even easily take application for ourselves. The idea of the hardening of the heart that we can voluntarily do. A hard heart is not a good heart to have. So now I'm at the end of the time for our session just now. But I want to present just a little bit into the next little piece of it to get us to thinking forward to what's going to happen next. Because what we see now is it's like a historical interlude. And we see a response to what the prophet has said through the person of this priest called Amaziah. And he has taken opposition. But the way I understand it is that we can be safe to glean that he's not speaking just for himself. That means that the message that he has is not one that he alone holds. But I would think that his view represents a leadership view. If not all of them, probably the majority. And that's where we're going into here. And so he makes an allegation or allegations and he sends off to Jeroboam. And he says, Amos is saying all these bad things. And he tells Amos, we don't want you here in Bethel. We don't want you here. Go back to Judah and make your living there. There's an implication there as well. He's implying that Amos was a higher prophet, making his living by this kind of thing. But Amos says, no, I wasn't of the class. I wasn't of the school of the prophets. I didn't come from a prophet. I was singularly lifted out from what I was doing. It's God's business and not mine. That's the way he responds to him. And so here we now have the first part of chapter 7 of Amos. And we expect the Lord to allow us to press on. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen and think about these things. It's a blessing to me, of course, and I trust to you as well. We are closed with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have demonstrated your love for us through your Son, the only begotten, the Lord Jesus. The one who knew no sin, he was made to be sin for us that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. We pray in his name. 
with thanksgiving. Amen.